Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief at the New Books Network, and just a warning about the following interview. We had a bad phone connection, and so the audio is a little bit rough. But in any case, I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Anthropology, part of the New Books Network. I am Master of Counting. Today I will be speaking with Dr. Morgan Liu, who is currently Associate Professor of Anthropology in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures at Ohio State University. He has written a book, Under Solomon's Throne, Uzbek Visions of Renewal in Ash. This book details some of the unique existence and many challenges facing ethnic Uzbeks living in the city of Ash today. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Morgan Liu about his book, Under Solomon's Throne. And Dr. Liu, I wanted to start out asking you, what inspired you to do ethnography in Kyrgyzstan? Um, you know, when I was, uh, I actually was working as an engineer at, uh, at one point and deciding mm-hmm. what to do with my life, and I realized that I, that I was very interested in culture for many years. And so essentially I switched professions and decided to, uh, to, to go to graduate school in anthropology. And, mm-hmm. um, and you also always have to have some kind of project in mind when you apply for, for these programs. And so I, I was interested in, um, in studying Central Asia because uh, it was really something that no one was doing at all, uh, at least not in English, not, in, not in from Western uh, institutions. This was the 1990 when I was doing this. Mm-hmm. And um, so when I applied, uh, I got in. And the fall of my first semester uh, at the University of Michigan, uh, well, the Soviet Union just collapsed. I mean, despite everyone's expectations, I, I mean, I was talking with the so-called experts just months before. No one saw it coming. They said they told me, uh, "You will never be able to go to Central Asia and do field work because I mean, it's just so it's just so politically difficult for any outsider to get in." And um, well, just a few months later. Everything seemed possible, so it was an exciting time in the fall of '91. And so I said, "Okay, I'm, I, I'm going to, to the former Soviet Central Asia." And I picked Kyrgyzstan mostly because it seemed like no one knew anything about it. It was <laughs> on the map, and I, I, at that point, I had no, no more intelligent reason to give you than just that. Um, and uh, and just two years after that, I, I got into this exchange program, which brought uh, you know American students to the former Soviet Union. So there I was on the ground trying to learn the languages and everything. So, yeah, so, yeah that, that's how I got started. And in the book, you, you talk a little bit about, well, you don't discuss a whole lot about the history, but about the post-Soviet states, is that correct to call them states? Yes. Or countries and how they were developed. Can you give a little bit of history about that? Yeah, uh, this is a, actually that, that that there's a little bit about history I talk about in just just what's relevant and and the big relevant thing is that uh, before the Soviet Union uh, came about uh, and, and it absorbed Central Asia as, as part of the Union, uh, 
this part of the world never had countries, never had states. Uh, mm -hmm. We understand them. Um, the technical words, they're not nation states back then. Uh, they were not. Uh, in other words, uh, you had empires, you had various political entities, but they never thought, they never thought of themselves in terms of like each ethnic group having its own government, its own state. And uh, so um, when Soviet Union came and they needed to administer this very, to them, very strange area, they knew very little about the customs and, and how the people, how, how everything worked in the society, they, they essentially uh, created the notion of ethnicity as we now know it. So all, all these stands we see right now are there, which has now their own, you know, you know, territory, its own color on the map, and so forth. All of that was created by the Soviets. So we had Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Tajikistan, and so forth. And um, so these people back then, I mean, I think, the, again, the relevant history is that, sure, they, they were distinguished. They had differences in customs and dress and languages varied across the region. But they understood that the differences not the way we understand differences today. They, they were not countries. They were not ethnic groups the way we understand them today. They were just, just different people. And, um, and so um, um, Soviets, I say, so, you know, they created ethnicity in the sense that they made them into sort of really you know, fixed, stable entities. And the, the interesting thing about, about this, just the short 70 years uh, that the Soviets ruled these people, the Central Asians, is that now all Central Asians take these ethnicities for granted. So, you know, I'm a Kyrgyz, I'm a Kazakh, and all that. And mm -hmm. they didn't realize maybe 80 years ago, 100 years ago, they didn't see those things as being ethnic groups, the way we understand ethnic groups. So it's, it's, uh, uh, that has caused a lot of problems. And so part of the problems I talk about in the book and many other scholars have studied, you know, so-called inter-ethnic conflicts and all that stuff, I would say they, they, they were created in part because now we've got countries, we've got nation states with fixed borders, and now we've got so-called minorities. These are people who don't fit into this, this, this grid of nation states. And uh, you know, my case, I'll just say one more point here. My, my case is interesting. I, I focus on the city called Osh, mm -hmm. in Kyrgyzstan. Uh, it's also called the Kyrgyz Republic, but I'll just say Kyrgyzstan. And um, so there are these, these, these people I studied are ethnic Uzbeks, so they're Uzbeks living in Kyrgyzstan. So officially, they're minorities, right? Because they're mm -hmm. because Kyrgyzstan is mostly Kyrgy, ethnic Kyrgyz, and here, here are these Uzbeks living in the city. But you know, uh, one Uzbek said to me at one point, you know, don't call us a minority. Yeah, I remember seeing that in the book. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you know, a minority. You know, we've been living in the city Osh. We're the majority in the city. And we've been here hundreds of years, so don't even call us diaspora. A lot of people, the Uzbek diaspora outside of Uzbekistan. So Uzbekistan is a country. It's got its own, you know, government and all that. These guys are outside of Uzbekistan, and some people call them diaspora they're, because they're scattered from their homeland. But they say, no, 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 no. Osh, our, our city, is our homeland. It just got, got thrown into Kyrgyzstan because of the way the Soviet people, uh, Soviet planners drew the map. So they said all these categories we use, you know, minorities and nation-state relations, all this stuff, those are, you know, recent Western categories. They don't really describe our situation. And so, yeah, so, that, so that, that, that was kind of one reason for doing this study, saying, you know, we need to look at all of this from a different perspective.
Yes, and you talked also about how Osh has its own unique history and that the Uzbeks living in Osh have a very different vision of themselves from what, I guess, the the Kyrgyz, the Kyrgyz there kind of associate with them. They kind of see themselves as a separate group and they have their own culture and identity that they they uh, continue to flourish in their mahalas. Is that correct? For an Uzbek neighborhood, yep. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little about the significance of their mahalas, what that means to the, the Uzbeks and Ash? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, this is something that, that, that I, I, I latched on to uh, pretty early during my work there. I, I described at the very opening of the book how uh, you know, when I first arrived in the city, I, mm-hmm. I was mostly spending time in the, sort of the official uh, you know, modern parts of the city. That's the part of the city that the Soviets built up, you know, lots of boulevards and Lenin statues and, and uh, 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 you know, big uh, uh, squares where we have military parades and all, all the sorts of stuff we think about the Soviet Union. So I was spending time mm-hmm. there, I was studying Kyrgyz language at a Kyrgyz institution, and then this, this Uzbek uh, 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 person took me aside and said, you know what, you're missing the real city, the real option. <laughs> And and he says, let me take you to where the what, what, what's really going on in the city. So uh, so she she goes down. She she takes me on a tour. We just walked literally a few blocks from the dormitory. And I was staying there at, and um, it's like you, you take a few steps outside that official city, and as if you entered a different world. I mean, it's like it's like. Uh, the streets look different, the houses look different, the people are different because they're mostly Uzbeks living in these mahalas, these, these mm-hmm. residential neighborhoods. And uh, I said, my goodness, you know, I missed that on this. It's, it's like, it's kind of like, you know, in, in here in America, we, we, a lot of us live in, 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 in cities and we tend to only go to the places we have, you know, our home, our business, whatever yeah. place we go to. But there are probably places in your city where people who are very different from you live. And you know, we have different social economic class or race, whatever. And, we, and normally we don't tend to want to mix and, we, and it's invisible to us. And that's mm-hmm. much the case here. And I said, you know, um, how can such a you know, city where everything's so packed in, you, you can like, you can uh, include these little microcosms, these different worlds. And these two groups, you really don't understand each other apart because they, they live in their separate worlds there. And that mm-hmm. first got me onto the importance of Mahalas for the Uzbeks and began hanging out there. So that, that's what sort of got my, my own anthropological work going in the Mahalas. Mm-hmm. And with the Mahalas, it was very different. You describe it very different than the rest of Osh. Well, I guess that you were saying the more modern part of it. What's some of the differences between the Kyrgyzstan culture and the way of life? versus the Uzbeks who live in Kyrgyzstan, they have their own separate group. What are some of the main differences between their two cultures? Yeah, that, that, that's a really good question because it, it's something that if you ask anyone, they always have a lot to say about it. They, everyone <laughs> take on this, this question. So you ask Kyrgyz themselves, you ask Uzbeks, and you ask the other ethnic groups who live in the city, Russians, Ukrainians, other people, Germans and Koreans. These are all people who live in, in, in others. But... Um, but, but um, mostly they say, well, you know, uh, they, they actually pull history on you. This is actually kind of interesting as an anthropologist. When, when, when people, uh, you know, have an idea of, of history and, and that explains the present circumstances. So the, uh, uh, 
you know, uh, say uh, Uzbeks would say, you know, uh, we've we, we've always been the town dwellers. We Uzbeks, we lived in towns for centuries. So we we were the craftsmen, tradesmen. We did the trade and so forth. Uh, whereas the Kyrgyz, up until the time the Soviets came, they were nomads, meaning that they tended sheep in the mountainside with their horses and their cattle. And so they lived a very different lifestyle, uh, a lifestyle that Uzbeks would call primitive. That's a, that's a, a term we avoid in anthropology, but that's mm-hmm. and uh, I, I mean, so certainly it's, 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 they, they lived in houses that were, were portable, we call yurts. It's actually an ingenious structure. I mean, Kyrgyz houses essentially you, you can pack in the back of a, of a horse, and a family can put together in thirty minutes. I mean, and you can go anywhere with it. It's, it's, it's brilliant. It's warm in winter and cool in the summer. So it, uh, you know, uh, so that's why I avoid the word primitive. It's brilliant. I think. But uh, but Kyrgyz, it's true that they, they didn't develop sort of the kind of, of of elaborate culture that you know people who live in towns do. I mean, they didn't have you know magnificent buildings or and magnificent, uh, you know, culture as we sort of understand it. Um, so that's part of the, the difference between the, they, they came from very different kinds of backgrounds, we call ecological adaptations. And Kyrgyz would also, also, you know, say the same thing. I mean, those are the basic facts, but they would say, you know, these Uzbeks, their um, culture, you know, they're very because they live in these, fi- these, these, these fixed houses. You know, they're so conservative. They're so closed-minded. And, you know, the Kyrgyz like to say, you know, um, when uh, Islam came, because all these people are Muslims, uh, Islam came uh, to this region uh, uh, just within a few hundred years from when it began in, in the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, and so um, uh, Kyrgyz would say, you know, when Islam came to Central Asia, the Uzbeks you know, became really solid, staunch Muslims. And when when communism came to the to uh, the Uzbeks, well, they became really staunch communists, and they're fixed in that mentality. Well, we we Kyrgyz, you know, when when Islam came, you say, yeah, sure, Islam, whatever, and they they officially became Muslim, but in fact, you know, they're not they don't really practice, and they mix it with other beliefs. And then when communism came, sure, you know, we're under the Soviet Union, but they they say we never made very good communists. So they said, you know, when independence came, 1991, when the uh, Soviet Union fell apart, Kyrgyzstan became independent. They said, you know, we, we immediately, we Kyrgyz, immediately jumped on the bandwagon of democracy, of liberalism, and you know, Kyrgyzstan was the fastest to change among all the Soviet republics. Uh, actually, that that is true, and in, in trying to adopt for a while uh, these, you know, political reform, economic reform. So uh, Kyrgyz said, yeah, you know, we were nomads and we were adaptable to the, to the weather and likewise were adaptable to politics. So the, these are the kinds of ways that they talk about their differences, the Kyrgyz and Uzbeks. Yeah, I got the impression that Kyrgyz believed they were much more progressive, more liberal, and that Uzbeks were very traditional, more conservative. Mm-hmm. Is that part of the, the conflict that you talk about? Because you talk about the conflict that occurred in 1990. And then the second one that occurred in 2010. Can you talk a little more about that, about where the where that came from, and what's actually going on between Uzbeks and the Kyrgyz? The issue about uh, conflict between uh, Kyrgyz and Uzbeks um, is a really disturbing part of, of what I have to do there. Um, it's that history of conflict is, is rooted in what we just talked about, the, the cultural differences. Uh, Kyrgyz and Uzbeks really do look at the world very differently. Uh, they have just 
they, they have very different habits and they hang, they, uh, they hang out and uh, spend time with each other and just very different ways. It just, it's just, uh, they, uh, they have, they're just, they live very different lives. And that's the, the basic root of their conflict. They, they just uh, don't see eye to eye on, on many things. Um, that's uh, kind of the background of just the lack of uh, mutual understanding that's gone on for a long time. But um, then you've got uh, the more traditional political science type of things that spark conflict. Uh, you, have, you have scarce resources in that part of the world. And Central Asia is a dry part of the, of the world where the uh, agriculture there is fed by uh, various you know, waterways, and uh, but land, air, good arable land is something that's very prized in that part of the world. So uh, all of the land around the city of Osh is either mountain, which is not very usable, or it's fields that's already being cultivated, or there are actual villages and settlements and cities and so forth, factories or whatever else the land's being used for. There's, there's no free land there. So that the problem, um, you know, c- coming uh, really starting from the end of the Second World War, um, from the 50s, 60s onward in the city, uh, the city changed very quickly. It was being developed very rapidly by the Soviets. More and more Kyrgyz started coming in, living in the city, because up until the Second World War, the city was mostly Uzbek. Uh, and, um, and so the city began growing in, in, in Kyrgyz. But by the time 1990 came around, uh, these new uh, uh, Kyrgyz migrants needed housing land, and they began demanding that from, from the then-Soviet government. And they shake out this piece of land that to them was empty, but it, there were fields that are on an Uzbek farm. And there was a standoff between the, the two factions. They, they literally stood on that field and the many demands. And uh, that became violent. And that violence quickly spread through the whole city and the whole region. Uh, bands of, uh, of, of people um, on both sides started killing each other. And uh, that was put down eventually by Soviet troops. Because 1990 was still Soviet Union, the very end of the Soviet Union period. And um, so after 1990, uh, during the 1990s, during the 2000s, about the time I, I was spending doing work in that city, Vosh, uh, there was peace. Uh, there was, you know, in public areas, I mean, people got along. They still bought and sold from each other and all that stuff. But always a tension in the background. People always told me that uh, someone said, you know, all it would take is just an idiot with a machine gun or something to bark out something. They told me kind of, you know, in a foreshadowing kind of way. And, well, that, that uh, was sparked again uh, in 2010, exactly 20 years after uh, these two incidents were, were both June 1990, 2010, and um, it, it was sparked by the tragedy is by something that's unrelated to the competition for land and inter-ethnic tensions in the background. It was sparked by a political crisis in Kyrgyzstan in 2010. That's, uh, that, that, was, that, was, that was in the capital city of Bishkek. It was, it was about legit, legitimacy of the, pre, the Kyrgyz president. Kyrgyz, ethnic Kyrgyz were, unsat, were unsatisfied with their own president, and there, there were political rumblings concerning that, mobilizations against him. But that quickly took an ethnic character back in Osh. And, um, and so um, uh, uh, one of the Uzbek community leaders, uh, probably making a big mistake, he took a stand uh, in this political crisis. 
And then that question then quickly took on an ethnic character, Kyrgyz versus Uzbek. And then so, uh, but the results of that 2010 conflict was just much worse than the one 20 years before. Um, there were entire uh, Uzbek neighborhoods that were burned. Uh, there was like, Uzbek businesses were targeted. Uh, again, bands from both ethnicities were roaming the streets, uh, just killing people of the other ethnicity, rapes, uh, all kinds of, uh, of, dest- of destruction. Um, for me, um, the, the real tragedy of 2010 is not just tremendous loss of life on both sides. Um, Uzbeks did uh, suffer the majority of the casualties in property and, um, and uh, uh, people. Um, but, uh, and to, this, to the extent that outside observers have called it a pogrom against uh, Uzbeks, Kyrgyz uh, dispute that. Uh, so, so even today, to this day, there are tremendous disputes about what happened and why uh, among all sides. But um, the real tragedy is that the lack of trust uh, between the two uh, sides have now become pretty much insurmountable. Um, I mean, as I said before, there were tensions, there were misunderstandings. But there was kind of like an operating piece, a working piece between them, to the extent that I, I, I felt relatively optimistic up until 2010 that, you know, these two can get along. Uh, but um, after what happened in 2010, like everyone's asking, well, is there a place for ethnic Uzbeks in Kyrgyzstan? Uh, the answer's not very clear. Uh, Uzbeks feel uh, they have no place at all, that... that uh, Everything is so stacked against them, they feel that uh, they don't belong anywhere. They, by the way, ethnic Uzbeks do not belong in Uzbekistan, that other country, the country that's majority Uzbek. Uh, that government of Uzbekistan has rejected them because they're not citizens of Uzbekistan. These the people we're talking about, the one I studied, they're ethnic Uzbeks in Osh, they're citizens of Kyrgyzstan. So, um, so again, uh, going back to how we began earlier about how modern nation states, uh, the idea that all these countries, all these stands, they're now modern nation states, um, that this framework really doesn't make sense for Central Asia because you've got people like Ash Uzbeks. Uh, they're citizens of a country they don't feel they belong to. They feel ethnically tied to Uzbekistan, but because of the borders drawn, Uzbekistan it rejects them. Uh, so they really feel they have no advocates anywhere. Uh, this sort of the interstate system just... Uh, if they are falling between the cracks of that interstate system. Yeah, that was something that I picked up on. I was going to ask you about their concept of their own identity because I remember early on in the book where you, there was, I think, a, a man that you were speaking to and you talked about this earlier about, you know, we're not a minority, we belong here, we've been here for centuries in reference to Osh and Kyrgyzstan, but then that they don't feel that Kyrgyzstan is a reflection of their own culture, of their identity. And although they culturally identify with Uzbekistan, they don't belong there either. And you did talk some in the book about the different um, Uzbek concepts of what type of leadership there should be, what kind of society they should live in. But how does that, how is that, how do they reconcile all these different versions of themselves how do they live like Because I know it's very complicated. It was a lot going on when you were discussing the different aspects of their life. But how do they reconcile who they are when they kind of live in a place that's not them and the place that 
belongs to people like them does not accept them either. Yeah, Astrid, I think you've put your finger on the core of their dilemma, the dilemma they've had to live with since the end of the Soviet Union, 1991. Um, and and uh, so the fact that they don't belong anywhere, they don't belong anywhere in the post-Soviet system. Um, that is a tragedy for them, but researcher, in a sense, that, that got my investigation going. Uh, because uh, when, when you don't fit anywhere, when uh, the sort of natural channels, the, the, the more traditional channels for getting what you need as a community in terms of political mobilization, of, in terms of, of getting some kind of representation in your government, or somehow petitioning, making an appeal to, 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 to the, those who are in power, those channels are, are pretty close to them. So the question is, what do you do? And, and the answer I, I come up with in the book is essentially that um, they uh, they began imagining what ideal government would look like for them. So in a sense, uh, it, it, because practical steps about mobilization were closed to them, because if they try to advocate for their interests, if they say, you know, we're being discriminated against as quote-unquote, again, ethnic minorities within Kyrgyzstan, then Kyrgyz would say, oh, you guys are being nationalist. You guys are mobilizing against. You're not the good citizens of Kyrgyzstan. You need to essentially, it was uh, the Kyrgyz government just says, you know, just essentially be quiet. Don't try, don't do anything that you're being too politically active because we'll take that as provocation, as insubordinate, even perhaps seditious, that, that you're trying to to secede from Kyrgyzstan and join Uzbekistan and so forth. So that, that um, worry is always in the background. Uzbeks were bending over backwards, in my opinion, to say, you know, we're not trying to, to be disloyal, that, that, that uh, we want to be seen as loyal citizens of Kyrgyzstan. That, that's what pattern they developed, in, in, especially in the 2000s, Uzbeks in Kyrgyzstan. Um, given the fact that they, had, they, did not have, they were constrained politically, then I, I, would, I, I argue that a lot of their commentary they were talking about, then what is good government? What would good government look like uh, if, given the fact that we were facing so much injustice? So for me, it, it was sort of they were channeling their frustration into just, just talking, debating about all kinds of issues during that time. But I was picking, picking up a, kind of a subtext under it with all their actual debates during the 90s and 2000s, that really yearning for good government, a just government that serves the common interests of all people, not just ethnic Kyrgyz, in their view, they're being discriminated against. So, so what I'm simply saying is that, uh, you know, given that they have all these constraints on their political mobilization, that um, what's, what's, what's behind what they were thinking and what they were uh, debating about within their communities during the 1990s and 2000s, really uh, in the back of that, imagining what good, just government would look like. And so that's part of what I unpack uh, in, in my What is their conception of, of good government and, uh, and why they have these conceptions? I make a sort of argument that's part of, 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 their, of them being part of the Soviet Union, but it's also part of their Islamic heritage. They're, they're very, they're very Central Asian uh, experiences. So I'm saying that they have a very way of, of imagining good government.
You also said very often that the Uzbeks think with their city. Can you kind of talk about what you mean when you say that? Yeah, that's that's something I I um I sort of came up because I I you know I I grew up in New York City and I and I've lived in cities all my life mostly, and uh, I'm just very fascinated with. And um, so I, I, I noticed the way that, you know, just even reading the U.S. press about, you know, uh, about, about various cities or travel writing, that, you know, people who live in, in, in their cities tend to have various ways of talking about their own city. And this often is this romanticization. A city can like, conjure certain ideas or lifestyles or certain, certain even maybe physical image like the skyline or certain some landmark somehow summarizes the whole city for them. So uh, when I first, uh, all my years living in Osh, I, I, I've always thought about, you know, why am I so interested in the city? Why am I so drawn to it? And that that, that became part of, 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 of the way, sort of the framework I used to, 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 for my study, uh, that uh, I was talking about how, how uh, I was thinking through the city. I was, I was looking at the city. I, was, I, would, I would describe, like, walks I would take through the city, and using what I actually saw and felt and experienced through those walks, I would use that as a way of talking about the larger changes in the city, the trends, the regional, the, the even global of current that are impinging upon the city since the end of the Soviet Union. So it became a device, sort of the walking tour of the city became a device for me to, to think with the city to, as a way of talking about the city in the book. But then I realized that the people themselves there, they were also using the city in, in order to to make sense of what's going on in their lives. So I, actually, so I said, well, why don't I run with this? So, so, I, so different chapters of the book would focus on different parts of the city, different like, neighborhoods or the bazaar or the border uh, with the other country and, and so forth. And, and I realized that when they talked about those places in the city, they were actually evoking all kinds of complex issues. And so I would like, take the space, use that to unpack those issues as a way of, of really talking about how everything's so layered, uh, all these different uh, currents are so uh, intertwined, but somehow, you know, looking at a fixed, real, concrete place as a way to, 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 uh, to unravel all those strands, I thought it was a very effective way of narrating uh, my ethnography. Can you talk a little about the significance of Solomon's Mountain? Because I know that that has a certain meaning for the, the Uzbeks, but also for Kurdistan, too and how that relates to a lot of the themes that you have going on in the book? You can go anywhere in the city of Osh and look up, and you will see Solomon Mountain. It's, it's literally a small mountain in the very center of the city. And it's a very distinctive look is a very iconic kind of image. And uh, so much so that, that normally when there are, there are uh, uh, publications or or uh, or as symbols of the city anywhere else, they would put that a profile of that mountain up there. Um, and so it seemed to me like a, a very apt way to, to think about the city that I actually ended up titling the book Under Solomon's Throne because uh, one of the names of Solomon Mountain is, is Solomon's Throne. It's an old uh, Persian word. And, um, but that sort of became a metaphor for me because uh, if these Uzbeks are always... Uh, saying that there's a need for societal justice in the city. I thought, well, well, what was King Solomon of the Bible uh, about? Uh, he, was, he was supposed to have uh, this wisdom that was able to minister this very uncanny justice. 
to his realm. Uh, but, yeah, but Solomon, just a, just a note, is the same Solomon as the Solomon of the Bible, uh, mm-hmm. a figure in the Quran. In, 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 in Muslim tradition, he's called Suleiman. It's the same name that we say Solomon with. And, and the thing is that uh, King Solomon, uh, after he did what he did in the Bible, uh, actually came over to, uh, to Ash and, and died there. That's, that's the local legend. has all kinds of other significances. Um, uh, it has tremendous religious significance. Uh, it's a site of pilgrimage. People uh, from all around Central Asia, uh, especially Uzbeks, uh, have, have been, been visiting the mountain, believing that they do that and do, do various rituals there, that they will be a blessing. Uh, women who can't get pregnant go for fertility. Uh, for, for protection of health, for healing, for illnesses, for all kinds of getting a job, whatever blessings from 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 from, uh, from God, and this this is an example, by the way, how Islam during the Soviet Union was very mixed. This, a lot of Muslims uh, would look at this saying, "Well, this is not Islam. This is not their true religion." Well, they're, they're, during the Soviet period, for many people, their knowledge of Islam is mixed with these local religious practices, and so much so that. Um, uh, during the Soviet period, uh, Solomon Mountain became a substitute for the Islamic pilgrimage called the Hajj. Uh, as, as many listeners know, uh, if you're a good Muslim, you're supposed to go to Mecca, which is located in Saudi Arabia, at least once in your life, and, 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 to, and to, to do the, the pilgrimage, the pilgrimage called the Hajj. Uh, Soviet Muslims were not able to do that, mostly. Very, very, very few were allowed by the Soviet government to do this, to leave the country. Local legend said, uh, if you went to Solomon Mountain three times, that counts as the Hajj. So lots of all kinds of uh, overlapping significances of this mountain, so I somehow felt that would make a very nice metaphor for the book. So is there any other things you want to touch on while we're discussing this? Yeah, um, I, I mean, I, I mean, ultimately, I, th- I think it's it, the, 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 the uh, issue, so in pragmatic terms, for us outsiders looking in, is, you know, uh, what would it take for a society like this to develop in a way that would be prosperous, that would be peaceful? I mean, this is a question that extends not just to Central Asia. We know there are plenty of places, many spots in the world, but there seem to be these intractable, these very difficult political, religious, ethnic problems, and... uh, what I, what I was hoping doing by doing the study is to say, well, do, can we, when, we, when we study specific cases, does that give us greater leverage to think about uh, other, uh, more broad global issues uh, about uh, conflict and peace and, and prosperity in, in the world today? And, and I'm not saying I have the answers, but at least one, one thing I w- would say, a lesson I learned from doing the study, was that you really do need to take into account how the people themselves look at things. Um, I mean, the book primarily is about how Uzbeks and Osh, how they look at political authority, how they look at the state, how they look at good government, and uh, how they look at good community and, and, um, and religion, how all that fits into good community. Um, and one of the things that, that, that as Americans, for, for, for listeners who are, who are coming from the United States or Western Europe, uh, we have a tendency um, of, of, of sort of assuming the right answers, you know, the answer, the answer is democracy, the answer is more free markets and so forth. 
And, and while I don't disagree with that, I mean, I'm certainly, I'm, you know, uh, for, I often think that uh, Western promoters of these things in Central Asia or other parts of the world tend to do it in a kind of indiscriminate fashion. They sort of go in and sort of assume that, you know, we sort of bring in these cookie-cutter prescriptions of developing government and ec- economies and assume that it's simply going to work anywhere in the world. Um, I, I don't think that that's true. That, that, that reminds me of um, the story you told in the book of the, I cannot remember his name, but one of the Uzbeks that you interviewed, you said that he was one of the more modern, modern ones, and that he made the statement that he doesn't think that that democracy would be the right thing for the Uzbeks because of their own ways of living, that they're not used to that, they're used to having dictators, and you can't just take them from one extreme to the other. But he kind of agreed with the, I cannot recall his name, but there was a particular leader he was talking about. He didn't agree with him at first. He was a lot more dictatorial, but he said that this is actually better for our people than just sending them into this liberal state where they, their traditions, their culture, it's not built on that. They can't, they can't acclimate as quickly. That I thought was really interesting. When this guy said it to me, I was totally floored. I, I, I it was surprised. Because I was thinking, you know, like, like, just like you were saying, that uh, here's a guy, you would think anyone would be, uh, you know, uh, coming from a Western point of view among any Central Asian, it would be this guy. Because this guy, he, uh, he studied in the United States. Uh, mm-hmm. He uh, spoke absolutely fluent, idiomatic American English. Uh, he was internet connected. He, I mean, he was highly educated. Very, very, very smart guy. And uh, even he would say, you know, while, even though he uh, is for democracy and all these things, overall, he says, no. He says, he said, I think uh, the West has rushed in too quickly in trying to bring these changes when Central Asians themselves don't really understand what these things mean. Central Asians talk about democracy and markets, free markets, all capitalism, all the time. But what they actually mean by those things could be a very different matter. They, they can have very different understandings of this. I, because one take-home point, I hope this book and, and my colleagues, all my other colleagues in, in anthropology uh, are, are trying to say when they study this part of the world, is saying, you know, um, we really got to understand what the people themselves are thinking and what they mean when they say democracy or capitalism. And, um, and, so, and to, to try to connect with their ways ways of uh, of making sense of all these dilemmas themselves, and you know the answer. But at least when uh, people who try who want to, to give positive interventions to to the developing world, they they, they can have more tools to, to to think about. Well, how can we adapt some of these global institutions and ideas to these specific contexts, and. Um, there's no one answer, perhaps, but I think that work needs to be done somehow by somebody. So true. Well, thank you, Dr. Liu, for participating in the interview with me today. Astrid, it's a great pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. This has been Astrid County for New Books and Anthropology, part of the New Books Network. I have been speaking with Dr. Morgan Liu about his book, Under Solomon's Throne, Uzbek Visions of Renew and Ash. It is available now via University of Pittsburgh Press.